This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the conclusion episode of The Thirty Years War. Thanks so much for joining me here in, yes, a very sad time because we are waving goodbye for now to this era. And stick around till the end after this conclusion episode and you'll hear some thoughts from me about this series and how it went. And also, more interestingly to you perhaps, my plans for the future, both with what I intend to do more with the Thirty Years' War and what I intend to do now that, well, our regularly scheduled programming has kind of run out and there's nothing really else to come for a while. I hope you're keeping well and staying sane in these strange times we're living in. I myself have been chained to my desk, of course. And have been typing out the last few steps of the PhD. There's still a good bit of work to do, but I should be on course to finish it in time. All it's going to take is a lot more hard work and a little bit of grit and probably more sweat than I'd like to donate. But hey, we've come this far and now we're in the final stretch and I'll be damned if I'm going to let anything stop me from adding those extra letters to my name. In this episode today, we wrap up those 82 episodes we've spent looking at this conflict, and we hopefully bring it to a satisfying conclusion. So if that sounds interesting to you, all I have to say is thanks, and I will now take you for the final time to the Thirty Years' War. They say the terrible war is now over. But there is still no sign of peace. Everywhere there is envy, hatred and greed. That's what the war has taught us. We live like animals, eating bark and grass. No one could have imagined that anything like this would happen to us. Many people say that there is no God. But we still believe that God has not abandoned us. We must all stand together and help each other. This entry was scrawled into the Bible of a Swabian family and is dated 17th of January, 1647. Evidently for them, the war was not over yet, but the confusion which the unfortunate family felt and the desperation they had for peace is palpable. 
Indeed, if the passage of time had not played its role, we would expect to find a myriad of family Bibles and diaries with entries similar to this one. The war had lasted a generation, and the peace process had been in many ways a war in its own right, having dragged through the 1640s, beginning in 1643 and continuing at an inconsistent pace until it ended on the 24th of October, 1648. And even then, the aftermath of the war continued to haunt contemporaries. Soldiers in Swedish service would not return to the Baltic until 1654. Many in French service turned to face Spain, and the emperor presented a force of 25,000 to stock the depleted frontier with the Ottomans, who had been ominously quiet during the war's ravages, being themselves at war with Safavid Persia. The war had underlined the pivotal importance of maintaining an army and supplying it, and indeed some of the regiments in Austrian service were to remain in service until the final collapse of the Habsburg hereditary empire in 1918. Rising stars in Habsburg service, such as the two Italian commanders, Ottavio Piccolomini and Raimondo Montecuccoli, were designed to carry the standards of this army well into the 17th century against Turks, French and other Germans. But what of the war that had ravaged Europe, however unequally, for three decades? For anyone born in the period 1618-48, to the war would have been a constant fixture of their lives. Some, like Maximilian of Bavaria, Chancellor Axel Oxenstierna of Sweden, or John George of Saxony, had lived through every wretched year of the conflict, but this was, statistically, very rare. Most, including the vast majority of the soldiers employed, had been born into an era when the Thirty Years' War was already a fact of life. These individuals knew nothing other than the state of affairs where the Empire and war were common bedfellows. It was difficult to imagine any other state of affairs existing. How was the Empire now to act? How were bankrupted, homeless, grieving families now to move on? Could those that had made a fortune in war protect these gains in peacetime? Was it possible to conceive of a system where justice prevailed? Was it even possible to trust one's rulers or one's neighbours that conflict would not be resorted to again as a means of solving outstanding disputes. These were questions which normally followed every conflict, but there was little about the Thirty Years' War that could be classified as normal. First and foremost, it was a conflict composed of several interconnected wars. Even those conflicts that didn't spill into the main war in Germany, such as that between Sweden and Poland, fought intermittently between 1611 to 29, between rival claimants to the Duchy of Mantua in North Italy between 1627 to 31, the war between Poland and Muscovy between 1632 to 34, between Denmark and Sweden between 1643 to 45, between the Ottomans and Venice for crying out loud between 1645 to 1669, or more painfully for Cardinal Mazarin, the domestic and foreign crisis known as the Fronde, all of these conflicts in their own way had an impact on the Thirty Years' War itself. Considering these varied conflicts, both connected and unrelated to the Thirty Years' War, one could be forgiven for wondering whether a classification of that conflict would even be possible. It defies easy classification, and it doesn't fit neatly into a box. Going back to the origins of the whole thing, was it a world war, since conflicts were fought over distant colonies, 
owned by the interested powers like the Spanish, Portuguese and Dutch? Or was it a German war, since the conflict between the Emperor and his enemies was waged mostly on German soil? Maybe it would be helpful to view the wars originating in the power and ambitions of the Habsburg dynasty, while the states who intervened in the empire represented wild cards, altering the status of the conflict as they did so. Or maybe it was a civil war, since the conflict had first erupted out of a bohemian succession issue within the HRE, and it had been prolonged by the Palatine question. Others underline the religious aspects of the conflict, and note that the Thirty Years' War was primarily religious in nature, that the peace was religiously oriented, and that Europe never saw a war for religious questions of its kind again. Others still believe that the very concept of the Thirty Years' War is flawed, and that by viewing these conflicts as one, we do the historical record a disservice. You probably know where I stand on all of this by now, where these historians and thinkers etc. propose these questions and answers in black or white terms, I prefer to go more into the grey, because the Thirty Years' War was all of these things to varying degrees. It was rooted in disagreements over the Empire's constitution and religious makeup, which dated back to the Reformation. It was aggravated and prolonged by the intervention of interested foreign powers, like the Danes in 1625, Sweden in 1630 and France in 1635. It was shaped by the intervention of these powers, just as it was shaped by the distraction of normally active states like Poland, England and the Ottoman Empire. It was complemented, if such a term could be used, by the continuation of the simultaneous Eighty Years' War between the Dutch and Spain. It provided the platform between the latest confrontation between the House of Bourbon and the House of Habsburg, which didn't end until 1659, and which was resumed a few years after that. While we may be assured of the validity of the term Thirty Years' War, we may also be assured that attempting to classify such an event is an impossible task. Having said that, it is possible to view the Holy Roman Empire as the centre of the conflict, or the main event, since the majority of the decisive campaigns were fought there, and the war itself began within the boundaries of this realm in 1618. Furthermore, the Peace of Westphalia focused intently upon leaving the empire in a state of peace by settling religious and civil issues which had plagued her states since the Reformation. Resolving these dilemmas naturally dragged the negotiations out, but they also enabled the Habsburg emperors to husband their resources in the aftermath of the war and consolidate their strength in the hereditary lands, leading as a result to the conception of Austria as a great European power. It was within the empire that peace was most durable, but a lasting Christian peace covering all of Europe was an illusion, nor did contemporaries of the peace genuinely expect an end to war. All they could truly hope for was that things would get better, as one prayed in 1642, The Lord grant that our sons grow up in their youth like plants and our daughters like the bay trees, and that our palaces and magazines be full so that they can produce one supply after another, that our sheep bear a thousand and a hundred thousand in our villages. Those that lived through the worst excesses of the war had spent its final years willing it to end. Having yearned for peace or news of some breakthrough that would facilitate peace, it's little surprise that Germans in particular should have sighed and shouted with joy, as one historian noted, when news of the Peace of Westphalia reached them. 
However, if such optimists looked a little closer at the final peace document, several truths would have been obvious, as the historian John Gagliardo noted, they might have seen the evacuations of troops from their fatherland for what it really was, a respite from war, not eternal absolution from it. The treaty reflected no conscious desire to create conditions for perpetual peace, but only every participant's determination to protect his own interests and position to the degree permitted by others under the circumstances of the moment. Indeed, far from ending war, the Thirty Years' War had forced all European states to place intolerable pressures on their subjects, and it had exported disorder to the whole of Europe, in the words of Sheila Ogilvie. Much of this disorder had to do with the towering number of soldiers under arms at any one time, relying invariably upon the resources of the Empire for their succour, where insufficient supply lines made regular provisioning impossible. The nature of the conflict meant that military service became something of a scramble for the best contracts and terms. Loyalty was in short supply, especially when a favoured tactic was to coerce the defeated army to re-enlist with your side. If soldiers were in short supply, then all from the conscripted peasant to the released felon was fair game. The breakdown in the recruitment system, which had generally satisfied the demands of previous wars, facilitated an upturn in the recruitment of mercenaries. Famously, Scots distinguished themselves under the banner of the Swedish king, but they were equally active in Habsburg service, as were their Irish neighbours, thank you very much. Service in foreign armies, according to an unsympathetic chronicler writing in the early 1800s, was hardly something to be proud of. Shame on the pack of these mercenary swordsmen. They have made the name of Scott through all of Europe equivalent to that of a pitiful mercenary, who knows neither honour nor principle but his month's pay, who transfers his allegiance from standard to standard at the pleasure of fortune or the highest bidder. Scottish soldiers of fortune who had served in the German wars until they had lost almost all distinction of political principle and even of country in the adoption of the mercenary faith. Yes, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here, guys. One must be careful not to judge military service by the same standards as the 19th or indeed the 21st centuries. Some chose to enlist in foreign armies due to religious or political conviction, others because they felt compelled to, because of economic circumstance, and others still, because it was safer to be employed and drag one's family along with the army than it was to take one's chances as a mere civilian. An availability of mercenaries does not suggest an absence of conviction on the part of those that enlisted. Robert Monroe, author of the first historical record of a military regiment, and an actual contemporary of Gustavus Adolphus, served the allies of Protestantism faithfully and never considered crossing over to fight for the emperor. Whatever one might conclude about the loyalties of mercenaries or one's soldiers, these individuals made the Thirty Years' War possible and contributed to its destructive, harrowing qualities like no other factor. Like a plague of locusts, the swarms of soldiers crisscrossed over parts of Europe, wresting contributions from towns, raiding storehouses, seizing livestock, and taking advantage of the absence of the law to act, in some cases, reprehensively. A recent study investigating the woman's experience in Sweden's warpath reveals some shocking but unfortunately predictable findings. 
Rape, for instance, was a widely accepted consequence of war at the time, and while efforts were made to clamp down on excesses, instances where soldiers were punished for these heinous crimes was rare. This wasn't solely due to chauvinism or the attitudes of the day, but also to the practical difficulties of gaining proof while the army was constantly on the march. Justice was in short supply, and even those soldiers that were meant to be allied to the native population could behave horrendously. One example was in the town of Erfurt. Although it was allied to Sweden, this did not stop an officer from attempting to rape a bride on her wedding day in 1641. The assault was not successful, but the unrepentant officer offended again several times, likely taking advantage of his rank to skirt the law. In addition to the terror which the spectre of an approaching army presented, the practical dilemmas which characterised the Thirty Years' War exacerbated the crisis. The balance between supply and demand of foodstuffs was by its nature seasonal and delicate, prone to severe disruption in the event of a conflict which drew away the labourer and ravaged the land. The peasant grabbed what he could and moved away from the combat zone. If he was lucky, the approaching army would be provisioned and would not have to live off his land. As we have learned though, luck was in short supply for these poor peasants. The likelihood of an army receiving sufficient supplies, which could sustain it through the duration of a campaign, was incredibly rare, especially as the war went on. And the larger the army was, the more unlikely it was the government had the means to provision it. Thus, an example is given of 2,000 English and Scottish soldiers who enlisted to fight for the King of Denmark and defended his fortress of Gluckstadt over the winter of 1627-28. The smaller, more manageable force was provisioned with an impressive 313,000 kilograms of bread, 33,500 kilograms of cheese, 9,000 kilograms of bacon, in addition to 36 barrels of butter, 8 barrels of mutton, 7 barrels of beef, 8 barrels of herring, I'm not done, 37 barrels of salt to preserve it all, and 1,674 barrels of beer, of course, to wash it all down. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. 
Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Just think if a force of 2,000 men could require and consume so much, one need only imagine what a force of 10, 20, or even 100,000, such as under Wallenstein, might require. Because an army generally fielded cavalry as well, provisions would be required for men and beast alike. If an army marched with 20,000 horse, for example, these would require not just 9,000 kilos of fodder, but also 4,000 good acres of grazing land. Because of these requirements, armies on the march would literally strip the ground bare, and any prospect of provisioning them directly was out of the question. Sweden, famously, was not in a position to pay its soldiers wages, so one imagines that paying for provisions was something akin to a pipe dream. It was also in the interests of states to live off the land because it was cheaper than providing resources themselves. The downside, of course, was that the system was unreliable and armies would be less flexible, but generally, commanders had little choice and planned their campaigns around the availability of such commodities as grass for the horses, which tended to grow back in spring. With these aspects of the war in mind, we shouldn't be surprised when confronted by a large butcher's bill by 1648. Taking the parameters of 1600 to 1650, we can deduce that the population of Spain declined from 7.6 million to 5.2 million, that Russia declined from 11 million to 9.5 million, Italy dipped from 13 to 12 million, Germany's population declined from 15 million to 11 million, and Bohemia's population contracted by nearly half, from 4 million to 2.25 million. All told, some 20 million souls vanished from Europe during the first half of the century. Of course, we can't blame all these losses on the Thirty Years' War. Across Europe, everything from the time of troubles in Russia to the appearance of a miniature ice age, where the temperature dropped by one degrees with dramatic consequences, should be considered. This is to show that although the Thirty Years' War is generally accepted to have cost 8 million lives, the unfortunate peoples caught in the war's furies could be killed by all manner of causes, be it starvation, famine, disease, murder or exposure. Death on the battlefield, revealingly, represented a proportionally small number of those killed overall. Yet one could argue that, just as important as the casualties it caused, were the wars it directly or indirectly fanned into being. We shouldn't confine our analysis merely to the wars which erupted during the conflict, like the Franco-Spanish War, Instead, historians have assessed the impact of the Thirty Years' War in the context of early modern history, asking the question, to what extent was the Thirty Years' War responsible for facilitating the later showdown between Austria and Prussia, between Poland and Russia, or between France and England? It is in fact difficult to pinpoint exactly where the ripples and waves caused by this conflict ceased to be felt. But if we take a moment to consider that the conflict was a feature of European realities for three decades, such a conclusion would only make sense. Much as they disagree over its classification, historians also disagree over the extent of the Thirty Years' War's impact. Wolfgang Menzel believed that the conflict had a decisively negative impact upon the unity of Germany, and that it fatally weakened the Empire and the Emperor, writing that, one portion after another of the Holy Roman Empire was thus ceded to her foes. The remaining provinces still retained their ancient form, but hung too loosely together to withstand another storm. 
The ancient empire existed merely in name. The more powerful princes virtually possessed the power and rendered themselves completely independent, and the supremacy of the emperor and with it the unity of the body of the state sank to a mere shadow. Yet the outcome of the conflict was by no means clear-cut. The more measured conclusions of other historians are perhaps more valuable than because rather than attempting to discern the ending of one era and the arrival of a new thanks to the Peace of Westphalia, they view history as more fluid and essentially messy. If an accurate examination of the full impact of the war remains difficult but prone to simplification, then the Peace Congress at Westphalia suffers similar problems. Indeed, perhaps few myths in history are as stale as that which proclaims 1648 as the beginning of an era of sovereignty, the end of religious wars, or the end of conflict in general, or as the arrival of modernity in some sense. Contemporaries possessed no such high-minded goals. They only wanted to bring an end to a conflict which had twisted and turned through various phases since 1618. The Westphalian system, which was supposedly created in 1648, is, we are told, under threat, but this system was not the natural outcome of 1648. Indeed, it was only conceived of in the 1960s, and has begun to come under deserved criticism since as a flawed lens through which the last three and a half centuries of international relations should not be viewed. Significant though it certainly was, because it provided a guidebook for later peace efforts in the 17th century, Westphalia was not diplomacy's ultimate answer to conflict, nor was it reason's reply to fundamentalism. Religion did not cease to be a factor in politics, as demonstrated by Louis XIV's decision to expel all Huguenots from France in 1685, the tail end of a conflict which Cardinal Richelieu would have recognised. In 1688, British subjects deposed their Catholic king with the help of his Protestant Dutch replacement. Religion remained a mark of loyalty, for instance, so long as Ireland remained tied to Britain, and in 1695 the penal laws were imposed on Catholics across the two islands to reduce opportunities for advancement unless one professed to follow the state Anglican religion. On the continent, meanwhile, the old bugbear of a Catholic universal monarchy and a black legend which had once been ascribed to Spain was simply transferred to France. Westphalia's significance for religion may be contentious, but the case of sovereignty presents additionally frustrating questions to the reader. While one might assume that the treaties which constitute the Peace of Westphalia, Osnabrück and Münster, would be filled with references to sovereignty and convenient definitions of the concept as a 17th century statesman understood it, in fact the term sovereignty is missing from the document almost entirely. It would be incorrect, then, to view Westphalia as the moment when European sovereignty was enshrined in a document and all involved stood up and took notice. This was not how sovereignty worked. Even had the Peace of Westphalia contained pages of detail about sovereignty and its importance, this wouldn't have fundamentally changed how European states conducted themselves. At most, such a hypothetical inclusion of sovereignty would signal that states should have sovereignty and therefore authority to rule exclusively over their own lands, but should have and do have were very different matters, and in the 17th century the best means to ensure one's authority was respected was to rely upon the traditional means of legitimacy and power, be that through armed force or from legally binding agreements and contracts. 
It would be incorrect, in other words, to imagine the contemporaries at Westphalia sneaking in some revolutionary new resolution on sovereignty and expecting all involved to respect the new concept. Just as it would be incorrect to conceive a Westphalia as the end of an epoch and the opening of another, the majestic portal which leads from the old into the new world. If Westphalia had been such a majestic portal, then we would expect some fundamental changes to the state system to appear. Perhaps Europeans would discover a newfound respect for the sovereignty of their neighbours and refrain from attacking them so often. Such a revelation was not forthcoming though, in spite of the claims from innumerable historians that Westphalia explicitly recognised a society of states based on the principle of territorial sovereignty, we should not expect that sovereignty was unknown to Europe by 1648. In fact, it had been a recognised concept for three centuries before the Thirty Years' War had even begun. In the High Middle Ages, thanks to the deteriorating powers of the papacy and concepts of national identity, rulers over independent states came to see themselves as sovereign and their neighbours responded through a developing lexicon of political devices such as feudalism or absolutism and not through a sudden or profound declaration in a treaty. The simplistic notion that sovereignty was declared in 1648 suggests that those at the Westphalian negotiations didn't recognise one another as such before the treaty was signed, which, yeah, it doesn't make much sense. Indeed, Westphalia neglected to create either sovereignty or sovereign states, retaining the old oaths which the German states had previously made to the emperor and denying those potentates full rights or authority over their land. Although in practice some of the larger and more powerful states in the empire could ignore what this implied, the device remained a fundamental part of how the empire was conceived and it didn't vanish overnight with the passage of the peace treaty. Nevertheless, the claim to have founded sovereignty at Westphalia seems to have been based more on the propaganda of the anti-Habsburg powers who claimed to have fought against the tyrannical absolutism of the Holy Roman Emperor. According to this propaganda, it was the Swedes and French who saved the independence of the Europeans from the domineering ambitions of the Habsburgs, this despite the fact that neither Ferdinand II nor his son were ever powerful enough to take over all of Europe. Indeed, lest we forget, Emperor Ferdinand II had had to mortgage his own lands in order to bribe potential allies to his side, and he only defeated his palatine enemy in the first phase of the war by effectively rupturing the constitutional settlement upon which the empire was based. Considering the absence of any ringing declarations on sovereignty and the impact which anti-Habsburg propaganda has had on our whole conceptualization of the Thirty Years' War, it seems that it is time to reconsider what we know about what the conflict and its conclusion actually means. It's more useful to view the Peace of Westphalia first and foremost as a significant historical event, obviously, but what may not be obvious is that because it brought an end to 30 years of conflict in the Holy Roman Empire, it is significant enough in itself. Beyond that though, one should view Westphalia not as the end of an era and the beginning of another, Instead, Westphalia was the latest chapter in a century which contained no shortage of conflict, peacemaking and crises. The Thirty Years' War and its peace reside in a century which included, among other events, the rise of Prussia, the decline of Poland, the expansion of Russia and the last siege of Vienna by an Ottoman Empire army. Concluding on the impact of the Thirty Years' War in the context of these developments would be a formidable task, 
but the very dynamism of the century reminds us that very little time after the conclusion of the piece was allowed before additional great and terrible eruptions followed. Only a few years after Sweden's soldiers had returned to the Baltic in 1655, they invaded a new foe, this time in Poland, and a new conflict was instigated with the Danes, the Dutch, Brandenburg and the Holy Roman Emperor in the process. Consider also the case of France, where an ambitious new king, jealous of his glory, was coming of age. Barely eight years after France and Spain concluded peace in 1659, Louis XIV's armies had invaded the Spanish Netherlands. In 1672, his armies invaded the Dutch Republic, provoking yet another war with the Emperor. In 1686, Louis was at it again, this time over his rights in the Palatinate and his wife's late inheritance. And, of course, in 1700, the prospect of inheriting the Spanish crown compelled him to make war on the English, Dutch and Emperor for the final time. So, all these things considered, what are we to make of this period in history, having followed the conflict from its roots to its famous end? One thing's for sure. The Thirty Years' War left a changed Europe in its wake and left some grizzled veteran statesmen and rulers at the helm. To men like Maximilian of Bavaria or Chancellor Oxenstierna, the experience must have felt akin to a marathon. But their tenure in office would arguably have been less successful without the opportunities to gain which war provided. There can be little doubt that the Thirty Years' War provided commanders with an unparalleled opportunity for experimentation, enrichment and fame. But the coming period of the century, where the wars of Louis XIV were to dominate, would prove just as pivotal in honing the fundamentals of the drill, perfecting defensive fortification techniques, and fine-tuning the administrative capabilities of concerned governments. The military revolution was destined to continue, and additional revolutions in technology, theory and tactics continued to flow from Europe's military academies and its laboratories on the battlefield. Much like the terrible scenes of the sack of Magdeburg in 1631 didn't move contemporaries to stop the war immediately, not even the horrors of the Thirty Years' War in total sum could put a stop to European war. War remained just as favoured a tool of foreign policy as before 1618. The sheen had somehow not worn off. In fact, the war opened new opportunities up for those that had participated in it opportunities which could be capitalised on in the future. For the populations that would continue to be caught in the middle, this meant yet more terrible dilemmas, where the actors might have been different, but the choice was virtually the same. New gods and new devils had simply taken the place of the old. If you've made it this far, thank you. If you've been here since episode one of this series, when I marked the 400th anniversary of the defenestration of Prague back in May 2018, then thank you even more. During the 16 episodes of 17th Century Warfare and the 82 episodes of this narrative series, we've also looked at my favourite stories from the conflict, the characters that resonated most with me, and the characteristics of this war which make it, in my view, one of the most fascinating periods to learn about. I hope you'll now feel able to agree with that assessment. I know from speaking with many of you that the Thirty Years' War started off for you as a curiosity, only to become something of an obsession. And if you've seen my dedicated Thirty Years' War bookshelf, or better yet, my Thirty Years' War computer folder, stuffed full of articles, 
then you'll likely be able to tell that this is an obsession which will probably never truly leave me. And it is in line with that that I get to make an important point which really needs to be discussed. This 30 years war book, For God or the Devil, was published by a small press in 2020. I was really proud to have brought such a gargantuan story to life and I got you guys involved as PhD pals to add to the hype in return for a dedication in the acknowledgements. Now, this is a story I've told before, but in case you're unfamiliar, I'll just say that next time before committing to post a book to people all the way around the world, I'll actually take into account how much a book weighs. Sending a two kilogram tome everywhere was certainly exciting and rocking up to the post office and making them hate me during peak COVID when restrictions were ridiculous was, let's just say, not a lot of fun, but I really liked signing them. And I wasn't really doing it for the money at the end of the day, which is a good thing because the whole process probably cost me about a grand by the end. Reflecting on all this and how the finished product of For God or the Devil in the end wasn't really what I wanted, I decided to buy back the rights for the book from that small press with a view towards republishing it. Now, this is the part where I'd love to say that I'm about to republish it, but the truth is I'm deep in the final stretch of the PhD, yawn, and I've had no time to rework the book to the extent I'd like. I absolutely plan to do this and have an audiobook to match, but for now, I'll have to settle for humbly asking you to be as patient as I have to be in waiting for the vaunted second edition of For God or the Devil. I really appreciate your interest and support, but I can't rush something this important, and I want to make sure it's done right this time. That said, if extracurricular 30 Years War content interests you, please check out our historical fiction series set during the 30 Years War called Matchlock. The first and second installments of that series are out now, and like For God or the Devil, I've had to significantly pare back my ambitions for Matchlock and focus on the PhD before going any further with it. Much like everything else at the moment, the PhD must come first, but when I have the time and mental energy hopefully later this year, you can be assured that both For God or the Devil and Matchlock will make their return, and when they do, I'll be absolutely sure to let you know. I mean, you won't be able to stop me. It's me, guys. So, what else have we got here? Well, two things, both of them content-related. You might remember a neat little project we did a while back called The Delegation Game, where you played a real or fictional member of the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, and settled the Treaty of Versailles alongside your gamified contemporaries. Well, the delegation game was really well received and was lots of fun, but it was also a lot of work. So if you were hoping for delegation game round two, Westphalia, to immediately follow this series, you will have to wait a bit, I'm afraid, before we paint the town red again. And it's something I'm really looking forward to getting back into, but I learned a lot the first time around, and the planning and demanding weekly schedule that the delegation game requires isn't something I'll take so lightly this time. I think I only have about two or three burnouts left in me before I'm forced to become a hermit and spend my days playing Crusader Kings 3, so for all our sakes, I have to be careful here. The last 30 Years War content point is something which I've only recently been mulling over. Now, addressing the elephant in the room somewhat, I'm aware that the release schedule for this series was a little bit of a historical hot mess, to put it mildly. Think about it, we barged into this series in the midst of our Korean War series, remember that, 
and everyone freaked out because they thought the Korean War was ending. So I put the Thirty Years' War on pause, drip-feeding 17th century warfare episodes, and then restarted the series properly in January 2020. But then I had to go only on a bi-weekly release schedule, which was obviously pants. You know why I dragged this series out by now, but I can't ignore the fact that locating all the relevant episodes from five years ago involves a lot of inconvenient and confusing scrolling, so that gives me an idea. What if we leave those episodes as they are, but hear me out, we clarify things a bit by doing something a little bit untraditional. My current plan is to take those 100 or so episodes on the Thirty Years' War and fold them into bigger blocks. I'm talking remove the intro and outro parts of the episodes, splicing them together with minimal interruptions, and then releasing them into the feed as blocks of content between 5 and 10 hours long apiece, depending on how much ACAST lets me upload. I don't know how I'll be categorising them right now or deciding what episode goes where, or how long some portions will be compared to others, but this should give those interested a great way to get all the content in a few places. Imagine listening to hours of Thirty Years' War with minimal interruptions, and the only challenge being finding your place when you return to that chonker of an episode again in the future. I think it would solve a lot of problems with the release schedule, but there's just one issue, because of course there is, which will delay me in implementing this. You may or may not be aware that about a year ago, my trusty old laptop from all the way back in 2011 finally bricked itself, so I had to source a new one. And this was bad, but far more bad was realising that yours truly, the idiot himself, had failed to do any backups of the Thirty Years' War series. Yeah, if you thought it was just you, it's not. Even PhD people can make such ludicrous mistakes, especially since I backed up pretty much everything else on that laptop. I, I don't know how it happened. But this means that episodes about 30 to 70 are locked into something I can't access right now. Now, it's not a total disaster, they're not gone forever, they can be salvaged, but it'll take me going to an expert to do the technological stuff that I still hate even after all these years. In short, once I get this figured out, I fully intend to fix the episodes up, move them into their chunks, and lovingly edit them for your listening pleasure. I think it would be a great way to wrap everything up and say goodbye to the era in podcast form, and it will ideally bring in new listeners who don't want to waste time scrolling and being confused. In terms of 30 Years War related news then, that's about it from me, but I want to also let you know in brief what's going to be going on here in the feed over the next few months. This is the end game for me and the PhD, and anyone who has done one or attempted one knows that the last few months are the most stressful, and yeah, I really just want to be finished this PhD now, guys, not gonna lie, but... I will persevere. The thesis is due on the 30th September, so hello to future listeners if you're listening beyond that date. And I have the viva or verbal defence before a panel of experts, probably just after Christmas or thereabouts. I'll be working in the background to get content to you so you're not starved, and I have a huge surprise still to announce, provided everything works out as I hope it will, so please don't take this as my announcement of dropping off the face of the earth. For the next few months though, at least until September slash October, things are going to be pretty quiet around here. Remember, of course, 60 hours of content you haven't listened to yet is still there in the extra feed, so if you are worried about the drought to come, now would be a great time to sign up on Patreon and grab all that. 
I'll also be releasing some collaboration episodes to remind you I'm still alive, but our regular scheduled programming will be mostly non-existent. Having now crushed your dreams and ruined your day, let me provide a bit of light by assuring you this podcast isn't going anywhere. If I ever do pod fade, as they say, you can just assume that, well, I died, tragically, because when diplomacy fails is my pride and joy and... It's probably my favourite thing in the world to do. I really do have massive plans for it in the future, and I intend for it only to grow and get better as we look into some fascinating new eras and series. Wouldn't that be nice? Some of which are directly inspired by my research here, others may seem completely out of left field. But if you like the nitty-gritty, scholarly but not dry, fascinating but not over-dramatic style I bring to the table, then fear not. This will be just a blip in the grand scheme of over 11 years of doing this, and I've come too far to let life fail and get in the way of doing what I love. Before I go then, have one final thought from me. When I started this show back in May 2012, I had no idea what I was really doing. I just knew that I loved history, and I wanted to share that love with other people. Now, having lived a life over the last 11 years... I've of course grown up a lot from that anxious 20-year-old, hopelessly incapable of growing Victorian-era sideburns, and I still can't grow them, it tears me up inside. But I could never have imagined that one day I'd be talking to you about the PhD I was about to finish, never mind how much this show was dovetailed so incredibly well with other studies in the BA or Masters, or how many connections this podcast had netted me, some of which are incredibly exciting, and which came about simply because of this show. It has been hard work, there's no denying that, but at the risk of sounding like a complete nerd, it was always more fun than it was work, and they tell us that's the dream these days, right? So this has been me, living the dream, now in the surreal position of telling you that, thanks to your tireless support and interest, after millions of downloads and thousands of hours, I am this close to being Dr. Zack. When we come back, we will be back with a vengeance, and you can acknowledge Dr. Twomley to your heart's content, but please know that however many letters I add to my name, I'm still the same goofy, incredibly nerdy boy who, well, just wanted to share his passion. Being a doctor will not mean more airs and graces. It won't mean a snobby new tone being added to this show, but it will hopefully lend it greater legitimacy and give me a cool way to sign off at the end of each episode. If you have a similarly unquenchable passion you want to share with the world, then for goodness sake, just do it. If I can do it, if I can make a success out of this podcast, if I can get to do what I love for a living, if I can reach the highest pinnacle of education, absolutely anyone can. This passion will always keep me coming back for more, and it is... On that note, that I am a little bit sad, but also optimistic in saying, thanks so much for listening. My name is Zach, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.